Is it good for probiotics or is kimchi bad because of all of the salt that it contains? It was a very interesting study. It was recently published in Korea. People who ate kimchi, it did not affect their blood pressure. The theory is it's because the potassium in the cabbage is so high that it offsets the sodium. Hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And today, school is in session, and the goal is to raise our nutrition IQs as we open up the doctor's mailbag and get answers to your health and diet questions. And prescribing those answers for us today are Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis. Some of the questions that we have on tap, really interesting ones, going to the drive-thru. Dr. Barnard is gonna be weighing in on McDonald's new veggie burger called the McPlant. He's also gonna be revealing his favorite veggie burger recipe. And I gotta tell you, this one sounds straight up delicious. And then Dr. Loomis is gonna be getting in on the fun and talking about kimchi, answering a question from somebody wanting to know whether the salt that is found in kimchi outweighed the benefits of all of the probiotics that are found in it. Is kimchi still healthy despite the sodium? We'll find out with Dr. Loomis. Plus, we're going to have tips for cutting cheese out of the diet for people who are addicted to it. So many people write in and want to know about how to cut cheese out of their life. Well, Dr. Barnard's going to tell us how to do that. Plus, the doctors are going to tell us how to lose weight, the best way to do it, on a plant-based diet. And we also had someone write in wondering what is the best way to boost iron levels on a plant-based diet if you, in fact, have low iron and perhaps are anemic. So we will find out the answer to that question as well and a whole lot more. But first, let's check in on the exam room news desk for some breaking news from the world of nutrition. And that is that there is new evidence that eggs are not all they're cracked up to be. New research shows that eating the popular food can significantly increase your chances of developing diabetes. A study of more than 8,500 adults finds that eating just one egg per day increases your chances of getting diabetes by 60%. The research also shows that women who eat eggs are more likely to become diabetic than men. The study was published in the British Journal of Nutrition. And we'll have more news later, including an update on fish oil. Is there something fishy to its claims about being heart healthy? Well, we'll get the lowdown on that from a new study. But before we go any further, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of The Exam Room is sponsored by Ellen Jaffe Jones. Ellen was a popular speaker and author of six vegan books. That is, until COVID brought all of that to a stop. Now she's turning to her past experience as an award-winning investigative reporter covering real estate to help Floridians who are in the market during one of the most challenging periods of our lifetime. Ellen can help you navigate through the process in a state with unique environmental and animal-friendly challenges. 
Licensed in Florida and with Realty One Group Skyline, Ellen can refer nationwide. Visit her online at ellencellsarasota.com. That's ellencellsarasota.com. Time now for your questions and answers from two of the most qualified doctors in the biz. Doctors Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis are here as we open up the doctor's mailbag and raise our nutrition IQs. This is a question from Joyce, Dr. Barnard, who wants to know, what is your favorite veggie burger recipe? Well, thank you for asking that question. I saw that question in the mailbag and I have dragged it out. Um, I've, got a, I've got a recipe that we came up with many, many years ago. It is the simplest, easiest thing you ever wanted. And can, can we go ahead and, and post that? Um, there we go. Okay. This is my veggie burger recipe. I wrote a book in, gee, 1993 or something like that called The Power of Your Plate. And I put this veggie burger recipe in it and it's still one of the best. Here's what you do. You take a cup of lentils and a half a cup of brown rice, throw them in a pan with three cups of water, simmer it for about 40 minutes, and then mash it up with some chopped onions, crushed garlic, tablespoon of soy, and that's it. Put it in a little ball, throw it in a nonstick pan, cook it just like a burger, and top it with whatever your favorite toppings are, and you've got a great burger. Um, it's got a almost no fat in it at all, zero cholesterol, no hormones. The only suggestion is I wouldn't wear it, I, I wouldn't um, eat it if you're wearing white clothes, because whenever I do it, it explodes <laughs> all over whatever I'm, whatever I'm wearing. But apart from that, it uh, your coronary arteries are going to be really Pro Eating Tips with Dr. Barnard. Uh, I want to stick with you, actually, uh, really quickly. We have a question from Peter related to burgers. McDonald's coming out this week, announcing that they are going to have something called the McPlant, which is their version of a plant-based burger. Peter wants to know, what is your opinion on this? Yeah, well, I'm really glad to see it. I have to say, we have been waiting for McDonald's to jump in in a bigger way. They, they've put their toe in the water here and there. Uh, they've been better overseas than they are here. Uh, but the McPlant, I think, could um, really help enormously. I, frankly, it could help the public and it could help McDonald's because they need to get into this game, uh, which the others have been in. Um, is it healthy or not? It's going to depend on what's in it. And we have not yet seen uh, seen what's in it. In almost, It's almost certain that it's going to be better than a meat burger. I mean, it's a vegan burger. It won't have cholesterol. And so it's going to be a good thing for meat eaters to choose the McPlant instead of a McDonald's burger. Um, the question is though, um, should a vegan be, who's already expert in this, and frankly has the, the veggie recipe uh, menu that I just gave, uh, the veggie recipe that I just gave, um, I don't know if the McDonald's one can, can rival the one that I just gave you. Okay, well, uh, along those same lines, I wanna bring in uh, Dr. Loomis here. We have a question from Christopher and Dr. Loomis, Christopher is wondering, is it possible for your blood pressure to elevate after eating several junk food meals or sweets that contain oil? He says he's trying to look for a pattern in his uh, readings and his eating habits. So what is the correlation there? That's a great question, Chuck. Um, you know, when we talk about diet and blood pressure, most people think about their sodium intake, which is, is, very, is very important, obviously, limiting your sodium. But in fact, um, uh, uh, too much unhealthy fats, particularly omega-6 fatty acids, can indeed raise your blood pressure. And here's why. So 
Um, the, the, those fatty acids um, actually get incorporated. They form phospholipids, which gets incorporated into our cell uh, wall, the wall of our cells. And in our blood vessels, cells that, it turns out, cells that have a lot of omega-6 fatty acids um, are much more, they, they, they increase their ability to, to vasoconstrict, to, to tighten up. Cells that have, that where the cell walls have a lot of omega-3 fatty acids have a greater propensity to dilate. So obviously when your blood vessels are constricted, that can raise your blood pressure. And so there are in fact studies that show that, that, that high fat meals are particularly un, uh, meals that have a lot of unhealthy fats, particularly the, you know, the poly, the saturated fats, high in omega-6 can indeed raise your blood pressure. That's a great question. Something I don't think we talk enough about when we talk about blood pressure. All right. I want to stick with you, uh, Dr. Loomis, because the winds of change have blown into Bob's diet. And Bob wants to know if he should be worried about gas. He says he's been plant-based for 15 months. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's a common problem. Um, and, and, you know, I think that a lot of times the reason people have too much gas is, is that they still haven't reset their gut microbiome that, you know, because what happens is the oligosaccharides, uh, these are, these are complex sugars that are in the outside of a bean. Um, when they get past kind of, when, when they get kind of not fully digested, they pass into the colon and they actually can get fermented. And that's what causes, that's actually why people with lactose intolerance, for example, get gas, that milk sugar, um, 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 can, 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 um, uh, get fermented. There are, there are a couple things. Be sure um, there are some hidden sources. Sugar alcohols can sometimes be a, a problem. And these are things like mannitol and xylitol and sorbitol. They're oftentimes used as artificial sweeteners and, and, and they, get, they get hidden in things like chewing gum and breath mints. That's a common cause of gassiness. Um, if, if you're you know, sometimes doing an elimination diet and, and trying to sort out what foods um, are really causing the gas and then slowly reintroducing those um, is important. There's a product called Bino, uh, which some people use, especially if, if it's legumes, which seem to be triggering the problem. Uh, Bino is something you sprinkle on your food. It actually has some of the enzyme to help pre-digest uh, some of the beans. Washing your beans, rinsing your beans really well right before you eat them is also important. Um, now, there are you know medical conditions which can cause um, um, increased uh, gas. So obviously, if if your symptoms persist or don't get better, despite these kind of simple measures, uh, I'd certainly suggest following up with your uh, with your uh, healthcare provider. All right, I wanna bounce over to Dr. Barnard for this next question. This is right up your alley, my friend. Marilyn is wondering, what would help for cutting cheese out of my diet? She says she absolutely loves it. Mm. You are not alone. And when we do research studies and people begin a plant-based diet, cheese is one of the foods they really do crave the most. Um, if you haven't yet tried nutritional yeast, it's a great flavoring you can put on a pizza and it takes the place of that of the of the cheese on a pizza. Um, it doesn't have any fat at all, doesn't have any cholesterol, doesn't have any hormones, uh, works really well. So you might try that. There are vegan cheeses, but I would be careful about them over the long run because they're pretty fatty as well. Oh, by the way, speaking of fat, let me come back to the McPlant question that came earlier. How do we know if the McDonald's veggie burger is going to be healthy. When it comes out, go on their website. They will post the nutrition facts. And if it, check the saturated fat content. If they've put a lot of coconut fat or palm oil in, into it, the saturated fat content will be high. And that will mean it's not as healthy as a veggie burger 
that doesn't have that high saturated fat content. So, so check the saturated fat. If it's zero or pretty close to it, then that's going to be a good choice. All right. Uh, next question, Dr. Barnard, sticking with you here. This comes to us from Thomas. He just posted this a couple of minutes ago. He said, uh-oh, my kids will not eat leafy greens. That's not good. Are there other foods that I can feed them that will make up for those nutrients? Um, kids are often a little phobic of foods that are sort of, that, that we think are normal. They think they're way too exotic. And leafy greens are ones that, that will freak out kids a bit. Uh, a couple of things that you can do. Uh, number one, try raw. Try, try serving them raw. For, for example, if you have spinach, once it's when it's cooked, sometimes kids think it's too gushy. It would be the the child word for it. But if it's fresh spinach leaves as part of a salad, they might think it's perfectly okay. So you might try that. Um, when it's cooked, try certain toppings. For example, uh, Bragg's aminos. Do you know that product? It's right next to the soy sauce at the health food store. You spray it on and it makes the greens turn into candy. You can put it on broccoli, put it on kale. You can put it on Brussels sprouts and people will like them. The same thing works with vinegars, like seasoned rice vinegar or balsamic vinegar. Uh, people often like that. Um, however, a lot of kids, they're just gonna have to get into you know older age when they start to really get a taste for broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and asparagus. When they're little, they like corn and green beans and peas and, and carrots and simple foods. And it's okay to stick with that. Don't arm wrestle with your kids. If, if they're afraid of a food, don't fight about it. Don't make them sit at the table until they clean their plate. Don't insist that they try it at least once if they, because you're gonna have more problems. Uh, just let it go and serve them the healthy foods that they will eat. Dr. Loomis, coming uh, to you now, Bobby needs some help with weight loss. Uh, they write, I need to lose 20 pounds on a plant-based diet, though, do I still need to restrict calories and look at the macronutrient ratios? You know, that's one of the, that's another great question. Um, and, and that's really one of the beauties of a whole food plant-based diet is, in fact, you don't need to count calories. You don't need to, to, um, to, to count up macronutrients because, it, you know, a well-balanced whole food plant-based diet following the power plate um, really will provide you all the nutrients. And the reason is, is it has to do with this concept of nutrient density. And, and you know, oftentimes I talk to patients about, about thinking of our calories like we do about money, right? When we have extra money, we want to invest in our financial future and we're looking for positive return on investment, ROI. Well, that's how we should think about our calories because every calorie you put in your mouth is either an investment in your health future or it's not. And when we invest, when we, when we eat things like edible oils, like, like canola oil, or we eat eggs or we eat chicken, um, you know, what do we get back nutritionally from those foods? Well, it's really just fat and protein. And the face of oils is just fat. I mean, there's no fiber. There's no cancer fighting phytonutrients. There's no potassium to lower your blood pressure, on and on and on. When we eat whole foods, you know, 100 calories of, of, of chicken is only an ounce, right? So how much space is that going to take up in your stomach? Not very much. You're not going to be full. What about broccoli? 100 calories of broccoli, 12 ounces, right? That is a lot of broccoli. But that's really the point because it becomes calorically self-limiting. It is hard to overconsume whole food, plant-based uh, foods because of that nutrient density. And what do you get back as an ROI? You get fiber, you get cancer-fighting phytonutrients. You get, you know, there's almost as much protein as in an egg or in that ounce of, of, of chicken breast. So, so by focusing on whole foods, um, the nutrient density really helps it again, becomes calorically self-limiting. I mean, think about it. You turn on your favorite movie, or your favorite sporting event, you open up some Doritos, 
how hard would it be to eat a thousand calories of Doritos before the game's over or the movie's over? Not hard at all. Eat a thousand calories of broccoli or blueberries in a week, right? It's like 10 pounds. Can't do it, right? So that's the point. So, so the answer is no. You don't have to worry about counting calories or macros. I'll tell you, I'd, I'd rather have enough blueberries and broccoli to last a week than just one bag of chips that you blow through pretty quickly. To me, that yeah. seems like a no-brainer. Plus, blueberries, just delicious. Uh, here's your athletic question, Dr. Loomis. You knew it was coming. Beth at uh, 1214 here, she was uh, says that she's a plant-based athlete, but I carry my weight in the middle. How can I lose that belly fat? Are there any tips, Dr. Loomis, specifically for losing that belly fat? Not really. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, some people say, oh, I've got belly fat, so I'm going to do more sit-ups. Um, it's really, you can't really, that belly, belly fat is the last place to go. Um, and, it, you know, it is hard. You do have to create a caloric deficit to do that. Now, there is some evidence that intermittent fasting may, may target belly fat um, in particular. Now, when I'm talking about belly fat, I'm probably talking about something different than what Beth is talking about. Um, you know, interabdominal fat is fat that's highly metabolically active and is in high levels of interabdominal fat have been, have been associated with a variety of cardiometabolic diseases, diabetes, fatty liver, you know, um, uh, high cholesterol, heart disease. So, um, and, and that's what the intermittent fasting has been shown to help reduce. Now, belly fat in the sense that you've got a, an extra inch or two subcutaneously, that is very hard to target and, and, and is the last, um, is the last are the last is kind of the last fat stores to be to be burned off. So, you know, in general, as long as your BMI is okay and you're for women, if your waist circumference is less than about 35 inches and your BMI is less than 25, you know, it, it, it really becomes more of a cosmetic thing at that point. Now that's I'm not dismissing that because body image is important and how you look and feel is important and it makes you feel good. But, but from a health standpoint, um, um, is, is, again, as long as your waist circumference in a woman is less than 35 inches and a, a male is 40 inches um, and your uh, BMI is less than 25, then, um, then you don't need to worry about it from a health standpoint. All right. Dr. Barnard, coming over to you for this next one. It's a question from Vanessa. She wants to know what are the best foods for a postmenopausal woman to eat? Oh, great question. Um, before we jump into that, though, let me go back to Beth's question that, that Jim was just talking about. Um, while Jim was answering her question, I went on our BMI calculator. And Beth is five foot six, and she weighs 137 pounds. And so when you calculate your body mass index, and you want it to be below 25, uh, she's at 22.0. So from a health standpoint, she's in really uh, good shape. But as Jim said, you kind of have to, to feel right. And it's uh, the other parts are, of that are up to you, but uh, you're in a pretty good healthy zone as it is. So a little reassurance from that, that standpoint. Okay, uh, on to the question about a, a woman who is postmenopausal. If the question is you're having hot flashes, uh, there's a fair amount of research on the combination of a plant-based diet and soy. And the reason that these have been looked at is a number of decades ago, researchers were struck by the fact that in areas where more plant-based foods predominated, women really didn't have much hot flashes. And then when the diets westernized, a lot more hot flashes came in. And so the concern is that the Western diet is changing the estrogen flux that can apparently trigger the menopausal symptoms. And then soy has been shown to, in, in some studies, not all studies, but in some studies, to have a pretty potent uh, anti-hot flash effect. So you can try uh, testing out that combination. 
If it were me, I would do a completely vegan diet, very low in fat, and about a half a cup of cooked soybeans a day and just see where you go with it. Um, but the other thing though is menopause means we're now about 50. And as we look out at the future, we're concerned about other things that can happen. Heart disease, you're concerned about breast cancer or colon cancer and other things like diabetes that become more of a risk as the years go by. So once again, your plant-based diet has got you covered there to the extent that it can be. Uh, you wanna get the animal products out of your diet, keep oils low, don't forget your B12, and you'll have a measure of protection against those risks as well. I'm going to stick with you here, coming right back. This is a question about iron levels. Uh, the viewer wants to know, if diagnosed with low iron, what should I look for in a supplement? Uh, they say that they've been vegan for 10 years and had great levels of all of their nutrients until they had to stop eating tofu and most other soy because they were having some sort of digestive issue. The person says that they're concerned because too much iron can be toxic. So what advice can you give here? Okay, so if I'm understanding right, you're, you had a blood test and they said your iron levels were, were low. Um, there are lots of different tests for that. Very often doctors start with just a complete blood count. Then they look to see what your hemoglobin and hematocrit are. And if they're a little on the low side, they might check your ferritin level, which is stored iron. And there are some other tests too. Um, looking big picture on this, if you don't have any symptoms, and by symptoms, I mean, uh, are you fatigued uh, or are there other symptoms of anemia? If you don't have those symptoms, but your blood count is within the normal range, but just kind of teetering on the low end of it, most doctors would now say just leave it alone because what you were saying in your question is true that being too high in iron can be dangerous um, by dangerous i mean it contributes to heart disease and probably to alzheimer's disease too and the people who seem to do the best are people who are within the healthy range with their blood counts and their iron indices but on the lower end of the healthy range okay let's say you, it turns out that you really are anemic and you really are low in iron the first question is how did that happen um, are you bleeding somewhere and your doctor is going to send you for a colonoscopy because they're worried that you're bleeding from your colon? Um, they're also going to look at other uh, possible ways that you might be losing blood and will then ask you, are you training for a marathon extra vigorously because you might be using up iron that way too? Um, and in the event that you need more iron in your diet, green leafy vegetables, always the place to start. Most people do not need iron supplements and in fact shouldn't take them. If you do, you could talk with your doctor about um, using the minimum amount of iron supplements that you need. All right, Dr. Loomis, I'm going to come over to you. This is a question that we get asked quite a bit. Kimchi is a popular topic with the exam roomies for whatever reason. Uh, this person, G Family, uh, writes a really good question about it. Wants to know, is it good for probiotics or is kimchi bad because of all of the salt that it contains? So where do you weigh in on the kimchi debate? So that's a great question. And kimchi has increased in popularity as, as, as people have become more interested and we've become more knowledgeable about the importance of gut health. And in fact, kimchi is an excellent probiotic. Now you, you want to get the kimchi that's, you don't want to get the pasteurized kimchi off the, you know, in a bottle off the grocery store shelf. It needs to be in the rated section. It's got live bacteria, even better. You know, the farmer's markets now all have um, vendors that sell kimchi. What about the salt? Um, that's a great question because we, we know that salt uh, is bad for you. It can cause inflammation. It's been associated with, you know, elevated blood pressure. 
on and on. And most people, most experts recommend we limit our salt intake to at most 2,000 or so milligrams a day. But there was a very interesting study that was recently published in Korea, where kimchi is a you know national food. It's been there for thousands of years. That people who, who ate kimchi, it did not affect their blood pressure. Right? So why not? Why wouldn't this relatively high intake of salt affect their blood pressure? What well, turns out, the theory is, it's because the potassium in the cabbage is the, in the in the kimchi, which comes from the cabbage, is so high that it offsets the sodium. And so, and again, I mentioned earlier, one of the things we don't talk enough about when we talk about blood pressure, about the fat, we also don't talk enough about potassium because it turns out it's probably the potassium to sodium ratio that is more important than the absolute value of sodium that you take in. Now, now that doesn't mean you should go out and eat, you know, 4,000 milligrams of sodium. And if you look at it kind of ancestral diets and, you know, you look at, at societies who follow kind of more of a gatherer, you know, very plant strong or plant-based um, um, uh, diet, they don't have bl high blood pressure in their, in, in their culture, in their, in their society. They don't have words for high blood pressure, nor diabetes, nor heart disease or colon cancer for that matter. And, and, and if you look at what the ancestor, the diet, the best we know, the dietary ratio of sodium potassium was probably 15 to one, somewhere in there. Now it's upside down. It's probably three or four to one sodium to potassium. Um, it's been shown that an intake of between 3,500 and 5,000 milligrams of potassium and keeping your sodium intake, you know, in that 2,000 range. So we're talking a two to three to one range somewhere in there is enough to lower your blood pressure five or 10 points, actually. So, um, you know, and, and when we talk about high potassium foods, the first thing that typically comes to mind when I talk to patients is bananas. Well, it turns out bananas are like number 50 on the 40 on the list. Beet greens, for example, 1300 milligrams per cup. The beets, you know, and, and all of the green leafy vegetables if you are, are like the top 10. Potatoes are a great source of potassium. Potatoes are a great source of potassium. So, so, you know, I, I think it's fine to, to, I think kimchi's fine. Now, another strategy to reduce the salt intake, by the way, especially if you've suffered with, you know, swelling in the legs and things like that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the importance of salt. Don't get me wrong here. Um, um, you can wash it and that will wash some of that kimchi, that salt off. But, but, but interestingly enough, the potassium in, in, the, in the kimchi may offset the negative effect of salt in kimchi in particular as a food. Kimchi. There you go. Who knew? You did, apparently. Thanks, Dr. Loomis. Uh, we got time for a few more questions, so keep on posting those in the comments or the chat box or tweet them to us using the hashtag exam room live. Dr. Barnard, back over to you. Question from Elizabeth here. She wants to know, is it okay? Is it safe to eat tofu every day? It is indeed. Um, the old idea was that the phytoestrogens in tofu would increase the risk of breast cancer. Um, these isoflavones actually have the opposite effect. Uh, the women who consume the most soy products have about 30% less breast cancer risk compared to, to other women. All right. Sticking with you then, uh, Tisha wants to know, is it okay to drink alcohol or wine a few times a month? You know, with alcohol, it's a mixed bag, double-edged sword. There are some reputed benefits, perhaps a lower risk of of heart disease and a lower risk of Alzheimer's disease with modest intake. And modest intake for women is usually defined as less than one drink a day. For men, less than two drinks a day. However, there's um, a really serious uh, downside to this, which is a higher risk of several forms of cancer. Breast cancer, 
colorectal cancer and many other forms um, of cancer are, are more frequent. And the bad thing is that that increased risk starts even with modest alcohol intake. Now, if you're having a drink a few times a month, I don't think that's gonna get on the radar of, uh, uh, with, with regard to, to risk for cancer. Um, but if, it's, uh, if the way a person unwinds is to have a drink, even one drink, if it's every day or most every day, that's gonna increase the risk of several forms of cancer. All right. Uh, we have a question here from Richard just weighed in. Uh, so many people asking about vitamin D here. He says that he only takes vegan vitamin D3. Is the uh, vegan version equally as effective as the non-vegan variety? Yes. Um, these have been studied for their ability to restore healthy vitamin D levels, and the vegan forms are fine. Um, you'll see them as D2 and also as vegan D3. Um, there is perhaps a modest advantage to D3 with regard to how quickly it works, but that's, it's not clinically really significant. Um, don't get into trouble though. Don't, don't take huge amounts of it though. Once most doctors would say up to about 2000 international units of, of vitamin D per day. Fine. Once you're getting above that level, um, there can be risks to overdo, overdoing it. So if you're under that level, you're probably going to be fine. All right, we're going to take two more here, and then we're going to close up the mailbag. Dr. Barnard, sticking with you, uh, Ray wants to know, how much protein does she really need? How much protein does a person need? Well, the U.S. government would say um, that for a woman who's of average activity, about 46 grams a day is, is appropriate. Now, that includes a little buffer, so you, your true need is less than that. And for a man, the number is 56. So for a woman, 46. For a man, 56. And if you ever get a chance to have your diet analyzed, what you'll discover is that it is really hard to get under that level. In other words, if you're eating any normal variety of plant-based foods, you're going to get the protein that you need. All right. And, and well, that's true. Even if you are an athlete who's, who's really working out a lot, you're going to get protein. Uh, you're going to get more than enough protein. Yeah, that's such good advice. I mean, how often do you, I mean, that, that really is like the first question that's always asked is where do you get your where protein you get and protein? how much do you need? Uh, final question. I want to stick with you. Uh, this is uh, from uh, Vikmar wants to know, do diabetes numbers automatically come down when we lose weight? For the most part, they do. Uh, when you say diabetes numbers, you're probably talking about your blood glucose level and also your hemoglobin A1C, which is an index of your blood sugar control over the preceding three months. And weight loss normally does cause these things to drop, to improve, and so that's good. Um, and however, let's say you're already at a healthy weight. You can still drop those numbers without losing weight. And this is something that we have talked about in a lot of our diabetes programs that we've done where our goal is to be on a diet that's completely plant-based, minimize the oils, that causes the cells to be more insulin sensitive and they just start pulling the, the glucose out of your blood really fast, starting within the first week of doing that diet. So if you're not on board with that yet, give it a try. I think you'll be really pleased. And really quickly, just to follow up on that, what is the prevalence of diabetes among people who eat that standard American diet versus those who are eating a plant-based diet? Oh, well, we've known for decades that, that the, the difference is dramatic uh, for people who are, if you just take a, a, just an average cohort of people, the omnivores have about 300% more diabetes compared to the vegans. And that's including a vegan who is not really very careful with their diet. They might be the donut eating vegan. 
overall, they, and not that I'm suggesting that, but overall, the risk of diabetes among people following a vegan diet is is extremely low. They're also the one group that's has a far healthy body weight. And in our research studies, when we have people who have extra weight and who have type 2 diabetes, uh, we go to a vegan diet and we keep the oils really, really low and the results are often just life-changing. There are plenty of opportunities to get your questions answered on the show if you would like to participate in the doctor's mailbag. And the best way to do that is to join us for the exam room live Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific over on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. But if you can't join us live, you can always watch on demand or you can tweet us your question at PCRM at Chuck Carroll WLC. Just make sure that when you send that question, you use that hashtag exam room live. Let's head back now to the exam room news desk. It has been a busy week in the world of nutrition. We spoke earlier about the link between eggs and diabetes. Well, it turns out that eggs aren't the only food to have their health claims debunked because another study is now casting doubt on the effectiveness of fish oil for atrial fibrillation. Researchers in California tracked 25,000 adults for more than five years, finding no significant difference in the rates of arrhythmia among those who took a fish oil or vitamin D supplement and those who were given a placebo. AFib is one of the most common forms of abnormal heart rhythms, affecting some 33 million people worldwide. Previous studies have shown that a plant-based diet can be effective in lowering the risk factors associated with AFib, including high blood pressure, heart disease, and obesity. And we will put links to both studies mentioned on today's show in the episode notes. And if you liked what you heard today, you got something out of it, you feel like you raised your nutrition IQ, and you want to help raise the nutrition IQ of the entire world, well, go ahead and share the show by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever shows are available. Hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star rating. And then once you do that, share the show because the more subscriptions we get and the more five-star ratings we get, the more this information reaches the eyes and the ears of those who need it the most. So go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee today and help make the world a healthier place. And that's all the time that we have for today's show. I want to say thank you one more time to Drs. Neil Barnard and Jim Loomis for giving our Nutrition IQs that boost today, really educating us and answering so many wonderful questions. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>